The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. My name is Dr. Rachel Grace, and I'm a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. I'm also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and your host for today's episode. Welcome to part one of our Mythbusters episode. Our guest today is Carla Chichester, who is living with pyruvate kinase deficiency, and together we're going to dispel common myths about pyruvate kinase deficiency. Before we get started, I just was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey with pyruvate kinase deficiency. Sure, yeah, no problem. So I was diagnosed at birth. My sister, my older sister, also has it. She was diagnosed a little bit later in life, and it took basically one look at me, said, you're a jaundice baby, <laughs> and made the connection. And I was pretty much just diagnosed since she had it. I also have it. My journey has been a bumpy one, as pretty much everybody else's, you know, everybody else's in the PKD community has a pretty, I want to say, everybody's journey is very individual, not one, two p- people have the same journey. And I think that's the core of the anemia is that it's all very different, each person. So it's just trying to find the right doctor, trying to find the right treatment that's best for me and advocating, big thing. How did your journey differ from your older sibling's journey? You say everybody's different and I agree, that's the that's what I hear Actually too. Doesn't even, yeah, she doesn't even have a hematologist right now, which is, it boggles my mind because I actually have an appointment to see mine today. <laughs> and I see my hematologist, it varies. Now I see him like every three months. I used to see one every year, but that was only because they weren't very educated on my anemia. And that's a whole different can of worms. But it's just, she doesn't even know her hemoglobin threshold. Like I have my memorized, mine's 8.5 to 9. Like that's my threshold. I need to know that in order to know when to transfuse. And she doesn't even, she's never even had a transfusion. So it's just completely different. That's so interesting. Even two sisters can be so different. And oh, yeah. it's interesting too, when we think about the, that pyruvate kinase deficiency is genetic, and yet that doesn't seem to predict for many people what the clinical course is going to be like and what the experience is like. Today on this episode, we're going to be talking about myths and trying to dispel some of the common myths in pyruvate kinase deficiency. And I wondered why you're excited to participate in that in this episode in particular. Oh, I'm so fascinated with all of the the myths surrounding this illness. And I want to advocate and I want to dispel the myths because I feel like the more education we bring and the more myths that we can dispel, the easier and the more advocacy we can perform for other people with my illness. I agree. I think it's really important to dispel myths for people who have rare conditions because it can be, I think, very difficult for the people who are affected and for their families to get accurate information about their condition. And it's interesting to think about where do these myths even come from? 
And I think there can be beliefs about a rare condition because clinicians may only see one or two people who have that rare condition and extrapolate what's affecting that particular person might affect everybody or might be a complication or symptom that, that everybody has who has that same rare condition. And I think, too, that sometimes clinicians also draw on more common conditions that might fall under the same category, like other anemias for pyruvate kinase deficiency. And it's not always accurate to draw on the experience of people who have those other anemias when it comes to another type. And so I, I'm excited to, to work on this with you today to dispel some of these myths. If you are diagnosed with PKD, you will not be able to live a normal life. Such a sad myth. That's so sad. And obviously that's not true. I live, I think, as close as possible to a normal life, especially during COVID and post-COVID or wherever we are now. Obviously, I'm safe as I can in a world like this, having the immune system that I do. But I live as a normal life as possible. I go out, I have fun, I do things within my limits. Of course, I you know get tired, but I look normal. I feel like a normal person. I have, like I said, limits, but you know, you live within them. You learn to live. I think too, as you said before, everybody is so different. Each person's experience with pyruvate kinase deficiency is different and everybody's symptoms and treatments are different and individualized. And so there is really quite a range in terms of the types of symptoms people may or may not have and whether they're on a daily basis or just when they have a virus or an illness that comes up. And we know, as you said, that children with pyruvate kinase deficiency, they go to school and participate in activities, that adults with pyruvate kinase deficiency have careers, have family. And we know from registry studies that individuals with pyruvate kinase deficiency are in their 60s and 70s. And I think we kind of extrapolate that they're probably in their 80s and 90s too, but our diagnosis of pyruvate kinase deficiency and our ability to make an accurate diagnosis has really come over time. So my guess is that people who are kind of older than their 60s and 70s probably don't have a specific diagnosis of pyruvate kinase deficiency because no one ever tried to make it and have an undiagnosed hemolytic anemia or even are diagnosed with another type of hemolytic anemia inaccurately. And I think the other part of this myth too is our ability to manage pyruvate kinase deficiency has changed over time. I'm hoping maybe you've seen that too, that what we know about pyruvate kinase deficiency habits to monitor people has changed over time and our supportive treatments have changed a bit over time. For example, with recognizing iron overload as a complication that people might have and having options of different chelators that people can take to help manage that iron overload. And with new therapies like pervic kinase activators and therapies that are in trials like gene therapy, it would be my hope that people with pervic kinase deficiency continue to live healthier and healthier lives. Definitely. And as you probably are aware, when children get diagnosed and their parents are extremely frustrated and flustered and they're worried if their children are going to live normal lives. And I think that's one of the best things you can tell them is yes, they probably will be able to live a normal life because of all of these things. And the future is bright, right? The future is continuously going to be bright because of the advancements in technology and medicine. PK deficiency affects the immune system, so people with PKD get more infections. So I'd say that we don't think that pyruvate kinase deficiency directly affects the immune system. 
one way in which people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency can have an effect on their immune system is if they've undergone splenectomy. And we know splenectomy causes a specific type of immunocompromise, not that people with pyruvate kinase deficiency are born with that, but that uh, splenectomy is a common supportive treatment for people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency. So a lot of people have undergone splenectomy and have a decreased ability to fight certain kinds of infections, certain types of bacterial infections, and because of that need additional vaccinations and booster vaccinations over a lifetime to help with their immunity towards those types of infections. Some people take prophylactic antibiotics for a period of time after splenectomy or may take them over their lifetime. And for everybody who's had their spleen surgically removed, it's important to have specific fever management where if you get a, a fever, then you are seen urgently within an hour so that you can have a blood culture to look for those types of bacteria and receive a broad spectrum intravenous antibiotic. So that's one way where a lot of people with pyruvate kinase deficiency have an effect on their immune system because of treatment that they've received to help with their anemia. The other way in which I see that people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency sort of have a different course with illnesses is because viruses and other infections can cause increased red cell breakdown. And when you get sick with an illness and then have increased red cell breakdown and have worsening of the anemia, you may need different therapies to recover from that illness. You may need a transfusion to recover, and it may take longer to recover from that illness than it would for somebody who doesn't have anemia and doesn't have increased red cell breakdown with that illness. I think that can give people the impression that they get sicker than other people because they it's not directly the infection that is worse, but it's the effect of the infection on the red cells and their spleen, if they have a spleen in, that makes the course of that infection longer and more difficult to recover from. Right. So what you're saying, it's the intensity of the infection. It's not the frequency of infections. And the intensity related to how it affects red blood cells in particular, I would say. So it's not that they're more susceptible necessarily to the infection, but the recovery from it can be more difficult. That makes sense. Definitely. Does that match your experience? It definitely does. Even relatively, people would say small infections, whether it's a sinus infection or even a common cold, it will take me a long time to recover from, or I would even need a blood transfusion to try to recover from. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. PKD patients are always tired because of low hemoglobin. If they exercised, ate right, and got more sun, they would feel better. That one's so sad. Yeah, this one hits home. I remember there was a time where I felt so tired and I wasn't sure why that I actually saw an infectious disease doctor. And I thought because I got, I had mono once and I thought maybe I had the Epstein antibodies. 
And I thought I was having a flare up or something. So I saw an infectious disease doctor and then she did all sorts of tests and she just diagnosed me with a chronic fatigue syndrome instead and said, just go exercise, you'll feel better. And so I just went to my hematologist, he drew blood. It was my hemoglobin was low and I was just tired and I do take supplements. I do exercise. I do eat relatively okay. And I'm still tired. That's just the nature of the disease. I'm not lazy. I'm not, you know, I'm trying. It's the brain fog. It's the fatigue. It's the, all the other, the things that are, it's genetic predisposition because the blood cells prematurely mollicized, you know that. Oh, also, I think the first three hematologists I've seen just like prescribed folic acid, like one milligram folic acid once a day, and then said like, see me in a year. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things when your hemoglobin is not low enough where they feel like they can interact with you and they feel like you're a, a, an urgent like patient. So they kind of push you on the back burner and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll see you in a year. Meanwhile, I have like three different crises during the year and I don't feel like I am sick enough to go because they said, I'll see you in a year. So I have an appointment in a year, I'll see you in a year. I think that's a shared experience with other people who have pyruvic kinase deficiency too, unfortunately, and work that one of the pyruvic kinase deficiency advocacy committees has done really identified that people who are not transfused have kind of the most unmet needs in terms of clinical care because of this perception that there aren't any clinical needs for somebody unless they're receiving transfusions, when really we do know that people need monitoring, that care changes over time, that people who have symptoms might benefit from other treatments like transfusions, like PK activators. So we know that there are interventions, even if people weren't previously getting transfused, and that does need monitoring and reassessment over time. And I think everybody benefits from a healthy lifestyle, from eating well and exercise and time outdoors. But we know that that doesn't address underlying issues. That's in addition to what you can do to address underlying issues. And for people who are symptomatic from anemia, just getting outside and, and exercising is unlikely to be enough to to really change the way that somebody feels on an everyday basis and certainly when they're sick with viruses and other triggers in terms of hemolytic episodes. Transfusions are only indicated below a certain numeric hemoglobin threshold. This gets right, right. at the issue you yeah. were just talking about. And I think that's the reason why I initially reached out to you. If you remember, I was in the emergency room and I sent out an email out of the blue because my hematologist gave me two iron infusions. Just like, what don't you do with someone with PKD? Just like, God. And I'm like, I've never tried that before. Let's try it. I don't know. I don't know. I was desperate. I just wasn't feeling good. And then I was in the emergency room and my hemoglobin was a 7.8. And they wouldn't transfuse because it wasn't below 7.5. And I was just so tired. And then I looked up on Google Scholar, not saying anybody should do this, but <laughs> I just sent the Hail Mary email and you responded. And then I got in touch with Dr. Hani Al-Samkari. And now I see him in Boston. I see him once a year. It's fantastic. He's amazing. I love him. But... 
because they didn't transfuse me that day, I had to wait two more days to be transfused. And those two days were so miserable for me because of that numeric threshold. It's interesting to me too, because I don't know myself where the hemoglobin numeric threshold comes from. There are other types of anemias like thalassemia that have more specific guidance about hemoglobin thresholds. But for pyruvate kinase deficiency, we don't have such guidance. There's no evidence from the medical literature about a specific hemoglobin that we should be using to make clinical decisions. And instead, most hematologists who take care of patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, I think, try to individualize that care. I think that's the goal is to try to individualize that care because we know some people with a hemoglobin of six and a half might have not very many symptoms, whereas other people have a lot of symptoms with a hemoglobin less than nine. It's just so variable. And we know for an individual, it can be sort of predictable that you probably know how you'll feel if your hemoglobin is above or below a certain number, but from one person to the next, it doesn't carry over. And so there isn't a specific hemoglobin threshold. And even we know too, for a specific person in a given year, it may be true, but 10 years from now, you may feel differently with a hemoglobin of eight than you do now. And so we know that for an individual can change over time, which is why it's important for clinicians to see people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency regularly to get a sense of how somebody's feeling over time and how, you know, or do they have the energy to do their job and the things that they wanna do? And do we need to change management over time so that people can achieve what they want to on an everyday basis? Monitoring is only needed in patients receiving blood transfusions. It's monitoring's needed for pretty much everybody with PKD. Right. We talked about this a little bit already that we know from registry studies that people who are not transfused have the same list of potential complications that can come up as people who are transfused. And so we know that everybody who has pyruvate kinase deficiency needs monitoring starting at a very young age all the way through adulthood, regardless of transfusions or transfusion frequency. If the spleen is removed, people only need to worry about infections in the first year or two afterward. We know people who have had a splenectomy are at lifelong risk of infection, and that's with the certain bacterial infections that the spleen helps address. And that risk is lifelong, that the highest risk may be in the first year or two after splenectomy, but we know people are at risk decades after having had a splenectomy. And one of my roles as a pediatric hematologist for some of the conditions, the, the anemias that we see where they run in a family more, even more so than pyruvate kinase deficiency, is to make sure that everybody in a family remembers that if they've had their spleen removed, that they're at risk for bacterial infection so that fever management is urgent. Even if everybody has the same virus in a family, if the person without the spleen gets a fever, they need to go to the emergency room. They need to get the blood culture and IV antibiotics. And so just reminding everybody that that's a lifelong direction that they should follow in terms of fever guidance. Out of all of the hematologists I've seen, they've always commented that my spleen is enlarged and they've always been advocating to remove it. And I'm like, no, because I know that the infections are one of the hugest, the biggest complications. And with the way that my body handles infections now and how it just hits me so hard, I can't imagine having infections more often without my spleen. 
It's an, it is always a difficult decision about whether undergoing splenectomy is going to be beneficial for people who have pervic kinase deficiency and other types of anemias. It can fully address the problem and the anemia almost looks like it's cured because of the splenectomy where there's where there, the hemoglobin is in the normal range. But for people who have pervic kinase deficiency, when it's effective, it's only partially effective. So the hemoglobin rises, but the red cell breakdown continues. It doesn't fully address the problem. For people who are, for children who are regularly transfused, need transfusions every month or two, it can be beneficial in terms of trying to come off of transfusions, but it isn't, it doesn't fully resolve the issue. And as you point out, increases the risk of infections. It's, it's not so much that people get sick more often who've had a splenectomy, it's that they're at risk for certain serious infections. And that is a lifetime serious problem that sort of added on top of having pervic kinase deficiency, as you pointed out, and can increase That's the so risk difficult. of, it is difficult and it increases the risk of blood clots too. It's a very challenging decision and oftentimes one that parents have to make for their children at a relatively young age too. So it's, it is difficult. Patients need to ignore symptoms until they become unbearable in order for physicians to believe them and treat. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I think that is so intertwined with how society views people with edemia or people with illnesses that you can't see, like invisible illnesses. They think that they're lazy or that they're not as tired as they say that they are. And in order to get treated, they need to wait until the symptoms are so severe that no one can ignore them. There was once where I was so sick that I went to the doctors and he took one look at me and he said, I'm calling you an ambulance. And I'm like, what? And I didn't realize that I looked so sick. I actually drove myself there and I was in the hospital for five days because I had like mono parvo and a double kidney infection that almost shut my kidneys down. But I was so okay with just laying in bed and just trying to wait it out. Cause I had this in my brain that I was just lazy and that I was just making it up or I could just rest it out and I didn't need to ask for help. That's like the number one myth that we need to get rid of. It's okay to ask for help. The minute you suspect that there's something not right, go and ask for help. Go and get your blood tested. The worst thing that could happen is that they find nothing. Okay, great. You're healthy. That is awesome. I completely agree with you. It's interesting to me as a pediatric hematologist, we see all the time parents advocating for their children and we don't really see this as much in children, what you're describing, that making a child sort of rally through instead of getting a blood transfusion or having children who can't participate in school and activities to the degree that they need to and that could be resolved with a transfusion, we wouldn't leave a child like that and a parent would advocate for some, for a change so that their child could participate. But when an adult is on their own to advocate for themselves, it seems like it's much more challenging. And I do hear all the time adults who 
really seem like they would benefit from a change in treatment, transfusions, medication, and it's difficult for them to advocate for that. It's difficult for people to be heard. And I agree with you that you can overemphasize the importance of people advocating for themselves and coming prepared to their appointments and really pushing for a change in their treatment in the setting of illness for transfusions to feel better and feel better more quickly. Carla, I want to thank you for joining us today and for all your contributions to today's podcast. I know the information you shared will help others with PK deficiency and dispel some of the common myths about PK deficiency. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Parvovic Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.